Ah, Baruch Hashem, Yahweh. So let's dig into the word today. Bind betwixt. Bind betwixt is our series here. Between. And of course, this comes from the between, the very commune where Yahweh communes with man, the place in between. Between the Cherovim. Bind betwixt. We were looking at the allegorical and the way metaphor works in scriptures and using that as a platform to delve into the spiritual application of the scripture in our lives. So that's not like I say to neglect the plain sense which is where our foundation where our orthodoxy is, where we can all hold one another to the account of the word. Spiritual mysticism, of course, would reject the Peshat, the plain sense, in order to go into allegory and metaphor. But those of us mature in the faith, all of us here, we understand that PARDES, the acronym PARDES, which is Peshat, the plain sense, Remez, the hint, Drash and so the deep mystical. We're looking at the remez and drash allegory and metaphor for spiritual application. So in this session today, I want to jump into Yehoshua, Joshua chapter 6. So turn there with me. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a few comments on some of my perspective, my view from up here. Over the years, some of you will steadfastly agree with me, some of you may disagree. I started off going and speaking at conferences, I believe, in about 2006 or 7 in the Messianic movement. And I made an observation, and that observation got reinforced and reinforced more and more over the years. And I would look out and I would see a slew of women. And in amongst the women, I would see a sporadic scattering of tyrannical men (laughs) that were leading their house with stick and chain. And oftentimes the men I seem to talk to were there as a result of the spirituality in the woman in their life. But then would take the lead and the woman would be left in the dust as the man took on this patriarchal role that was now justified by the Torah observance. And I even fell into that trap myself, and my wife suffered emotionally because of it. And I'm so thankful for the Malkitzedic understanding to be able to be delivered from that. And all that to say this, I have noted, and you may disagree, but I believe women tend to be more innately spiritual than men. 
That is my observation. And I understand there is neither male or female, slave or free, and you can have super spiritual men as well. But as a general rule, this is my observation. But in the Messianic movement, I also observed that there was more women that were, had been emotionally abused, oftentimes physically abused, and had a lifetime of abuse. It could be religious abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. And oftentimes these women had found strength and solace through the Ruach HaKodesh, through the scriptures, and Yahweh used them mightily and continues to do so in men's lives. But what I noticed is that the messianic movement oftentimes was geared toward the patriarchy. And it was geared toward the patriarchy. And if the woman could clear up some spiritual scraps from the message, that was all well and good. But at the end of the day, it's all about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the faith. It's all about the men. But in reality, oftentimes you find the strength of the man is because of the praying wife behind him. Or the strength in the congregation is because of the righteous spiritual women. So, without further ado, you knew I was going to say that. Surely, I want to address women today, but in that, I will be addressing us men as well, because I am thankful for the women in my life. I'm thankful for all the women that I look out and see here today, and I am truly thankful. And I'm thankful for my mother, who is a non-believer, but my mother is a, was a good mother to me, and still is a good mother, and I am thankful for my mother. So, all that to say this, let's look at allegory and metaphor, which has got nothing to do with women, nothing to do with men, but it does have everything to do with a jumping in point to what I want to share this afternoon, is that our setting our spiritual self alight by climbing that ladder we see of Jacob, Yaakov, in the allegory, in the metaphor, I spoke about the seven rungs, that you've got to overcome those five rungs that are landing in between the earthly carnal realm and the heavenly fire that is Jerusalem, that ignites its enlightenment. It's equivalent to the pineal where Jacob wrestled with Elohim and prevailed and became Israel. Let's look at the allegory or the metaphorical approach. Chapter 6, verse 20. We all truly want to reach the Jerusalem above, don't we? Isn't that what Paul spoke about in the, in the allegory and metaphor that we can pull from Galatians 4? Which I'll end with hopefully today. If I can really tie everything in, that would be a great place to end. There's a challenge for me. Let's see if I forget that or remember it. But we are striving not to the Jerusalem that is, the present pharisaical system, 
of Paul's day or the present religious messianic or synagogue of Satan system of our day that is the Jerusalem that is, the Israel that is. Are you looking to Zion, the Israel that is, with a prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, or are you looking to the Israel above, the Jerusalem above? Are you looking for the spiritual ascent? Because we should be geared towards the higher energy, which means for us to actually grasp the city above, we've got to set on fire our soulish carnal man and burn him to the ground. Right? If I'm ever going to grasp the Jerusalem above, I've got to burn out my natural passions and finally torch them, get rid of them. And it came to pass on the fill in the blanks. I know you thought I was having like a, a spasmodic reaction. Well, that's not, that's politically incorrect, right? It's like you saying retard. And it came to pass on the seventh day. Remember, we're looking at allegory and metaphor. We're talking about the rung seven, right? On the seventh day that I just want, it's been a day. I just want you to get into the allegorical and meta, metaphorical approach. Seventh, okay? We understand now what I'm talking about. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early at the dawning of the day and come past the city after the same manner seven times. Only on the day they come past the city seven times. Whatever. <laughs> Well, when I copy and paste from my Bible program, I think what happens is sometimes the little note things turn into verses. That must be the problem. Do you ever have that? I think that is on my Bible program. Sometimes the little, like there might be a note, like note number six, and then the boom. Then it populates every other verse is seven, eight, nine. That's what's going on. All right. So Joshua 6, not verse 20, but whatever verse it is. What verse it is? What? What chapter is it? Six. What verse is it? Fifty. I've got different voices. Ah. I got 15 over here. I got five. I got six. The raffle's not till next week. I feel like I'm in a bingo hall. Las Vegas. Could somebody tell me where we're at? Chapter 6, verse 15. Thank you. In chapter 6, verse 15, it is written. We'll edit the whole lot out. 
In chapter 6, verse 15, and it came to pass on the seventh day. No wonder nobody was getting into the back. Like, what? <laughs> and it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early at the dawning of the day and they come past the city after the same manner seven times. Only on the day they come past the city seven times and they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahuwah. So, in an allegorical approach, we again have to ascend the seven rungs of Jacob's metaphorical ladder to reach enlightenment, where the city is burnt where the city is on fire. So you've got to burn the base elements to reach the fire of the heavens, right? That's how we get the city to burn. And what does the, the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament say? To be baptized in fire, right? Overcome the carnal man, the metallic you, the frequencies of above, your spiritual energy center, has to be purified. So what we were talking about this morning, men, was about your spiritual and physiological energy centers being defiled. How can you ever ascend to purification if we are not overcoming the base elements of our natural selves? Yahuwah wants us to move from one to seven. It's what Yahuwah wants, and that's how you'll end up in his treasury, kingdom, his treasury, where the finest purity dwells. Isn't that what we all want? We're sick and tired of a defiled life, a defiled conscience. Burn the dross out of your carnality. Yahweh wants to make his ministers a flame of fire. And all our energy comes from the right hemisphere of our brains, the high hand of Yahuwah, the promised land, if you will, in an allegory is always in the east. It's always in the right, the east. And he shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, and in fire. And it's oftentimes women that get this more than men. And men tend to be more brute beasts in their carnal nature. And it's not to say that women can't have lust and be defiled. There are sure a lot of whores in Babylon, correct? Babylonians and Moabites, yes. But it is something that we find more prevalent in our culture. The perversity is geared more toward men that then abuse women. And it can be a compounding effect. But it takes the higher you to be able to get out of the miry clay. So I want to look today at some women in the scriptures because it's too easy 
for us to focus on Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchy. And that is all very good. That is all very well. Genesis, Bereshit, chapter 12, we know Yahweh speaks to Abraham, and we'll look at what he speaks to Abraham. But there are some important women that are attached to Abraham. In fact, one that is often overlooked that we will look at more closely today, Hagar. Hagar. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, get, now look at the order here. Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we can see from this narrative that the journey is what? It's progressive. This is our journey on how we're going to set the city on fire. It's a progressive journey. And it's not the way that the culture tells us. Because Mystery Babylon tells us that there's a journey and it's opposite to how Yahuwah tells us. And that's what we're fighting against. We're fighting against the culture that wants to keep us carnal. And that is a tough fight. That's why we have to have the hard conversations to get to spiritual purity. Because you've got a whole culture in your workforce, on your iPhones, on your electronic devices, through the speakers in your house. Hopefully none of you have Alexa or any of those whispering devices in your house. Because if you do, you've got more problems than you know. But the journey is not what we're taught by Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon says, well, what you happens is when you're 18, you leave your father's house. And then maybe you decide, oh, I'm not going to live in the village that I grew up with. Then from your father's house, you leave the community. And then if you're like me, you may go, well, now that I've left my father's house, I've left my community, hmm, maybe I'll go check out another country. That's the world. That's the progression of the world. That is not what Yahuwah teaches his people. It's totally opposite. First, there is a physical action. Then there is a spiritual outcome. First, there is a physical action. And then there is a spiritual outcome. Men, if you can relate to what we were talking about this morning without me divulging too much, the spiritual women in here will already get what I'm talking about. Men, first there's a spiritual action, but it's got, a, excuse me, a physical action. It has a spiritual outcome. Because our war is not against flesh and blood, but principalities. Every physical action has a spiritual outcome. It is either for Ra, hell and wickedness, or Tov, the kingdom of Yahuwah and good. Everything. Everything we do. We have to leave our country first in the kingdom. Yes. We Look at Abraham. He left his country first. Then he left his community. And then he left his father's house. 
You have to leave your past behind. You don't live your life secretly anymore. Your spiritual life, you don't live it secretly. Because if you live your faith secretly, that's still being in your country, isn't it? That's still being in your community. You never left. You never left. You're accommodating the culture. You've got to leave your country first. Then you leave your community and then you leave your father's house. Don't be silent around your family. Don't be quiet about your faith around your family because if you're quiet about your faith, you never left your father's house, did you? Oh, you may have left your country, you may have left your community, but then when you're around your family, you keep quiet. Guess what? You're still locked into your father's house. Speak. Speak out. Be bold and be courageous. Now remember in Hebrew, there is no Hebrew word for person. There is Adam, which means human, to be human. Ben Adam, the son of man, to be mortal. Ish, which means to be male. And Enosh, which means humanity. Why is there no word in the Bible for person? Anybody? Because person isn't a Hebrew word. It has no Hebrew origin. It's Latin. It comes from persona. Persona, which means a mask. It means a mask. A mask worn by actors on a stage. A character that's being played out in front of you all. And that's the problem. Veneer. We live in a world of masks. And everybody looks towards actors and masks and veneers and persona. But we should be looking back to Abraham and saying, no, we need to be Hebrew in everything. Adam, Ben-Adam, Ish, and Enosh, humanity, and Isha, female. Abraham, Abraham didn't care how he seemed to others, did he? He didn't care. He didn't diminish his spiritual self to accommodate the culture. He didn't diminish his spiritual self to accommodate his neighbor. He didn't care what people thought about him because he wasn't acting, so why care? Right? Man judges by appearance, but Yahweh sees the heart. We're called to be known not by how we're seen or seem, excuse me, to others, but by what others may see from us, our spiritual maturity. Because Yahweh will judge our heart. Now, we can look back. Did I lose sound? We're still good? Okay. We can look back and we look and look for a poor example is Lot. After Abraham, Lot, what did Lot do? He chose the good land with the evil inhabitants, right? That's what he was interested in. He chose the good land, but he cared not that it had evil inhabitants. So what does that tell us? He put the material before the moral and the spiritual. Is that the world that we live in? People put the material before the moral and the spiritual. That's the world. That's the total converse of the life of Abraham because it's progressive. 
It's progressive and it's flipped. The Bible flips the script on Babylon or Babylon tries to flip the script on Yahweh's kingdom. We have to reverse it. We have to reverse it. Look at Eve. She saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and it was pleasant to her eyes. Lot judges by appearances. And if we're the children of the covenant, we're to walk by sound, not by sight. The voice of Yahweh, that still small voice, not by the seduction of sight. Let's see if I got this verse right. Chapter 12, verse 10. And there was famine in the land. Did I get it? Yeah. <laughs> and there was famine in the land. And Avram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Mitzrayim, Egypt, that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now? I know that you are a mm, you are a good-looking woman. That's what he said. Is that what it says in the Hebrew text? Exactly, with the emphasis like I just did. Therefore, it shall come to pass when the Mitzrim, when the Egyptians shall see you, that they shall say, this is his wife, and they will kill me but they will save you alive. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and my being shall live because of you. Verse 14. And it came to pass that when Avram went into Mitzrayim, Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, and she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commanded her, commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he treated Avram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Kind of sounding like Jacob, when he was with Esau, right? Before he crossed over the river Jabbok, like we spoke of yesterday. And Yahweh plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Avram's wife. And Pharaoh called Avram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say... She is my sister, so I might have mistakenly taken her to be as my wife. Now, therefore, see your wife, take her, and go your way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. And Avram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had. And Lot, that scoundrel, was with him. In the south... And Avram was very rich in cattle, in silver and in gold. So I like to call this the prophecy of descent. This is when Avraham really ends up at the lower end of his 33 vertebrae, if you will. He's, he's really down at the bottom, isn't he? In that carnal realm. It's me, me and preservation of my life, even if we have to lie about my wife. 
That's where Avraham was. This is really not a very good point, not a high point in the history of Abraham. But here, we can now see how to climb out of this predicament. If we look at this as Abraham being now a picture of us, of Yahuwah, and Sarai as a picture of Israel. Now, if we look at it through this lens, we'll start to be able to climb out of the predicament that he finds himself in. So, if Abraham is a picture of Yahuwah, and Sarai is a picture of Israel, we find that what? Abraham, in the beginning, he marries Sarah. And as we can see, we know that ultimately the beginning of our faith walk is when Yahuwah marries Israel. So we can start to see that the famine is in the land and they begin to descend into the world. They begin to descend into Egypt. The bride, Sarah's identity, is veiled. Thirty years ago, our identity in the exile was totally veiled. But now we're starting to awaken in the exile that we are Israel. The veil is coming off, which means the clutter has got to come out. And that's the problem. The veil is coming off, but many people want to stay close to the clutter. But if the veil comes off, then the clutter has to come out. Because we had been taken captive by Pharaoh, hadn't we? But now as the veil's coming off, we're coming out of the world. Coming out of Babylon or Egypt. Because Israel, being Sarah, she was possessed. She was possessed by Pharaoh. And we can talk about possession, but many have been possessed by the world by the culture, and it's all at your lower base of your spine, in the regions of your appetites. Pharaoh possessed Israel if Sarah is a picture of Israel, and Abraham is a picture of Yahuwah. We'll see how we're going to get taken up out of this pit, if you will. Because a plague strikes Pharaoh and he releases the bride Sarai and later Israel. So both accounts end up with what? The bride, if you will, plundering Egypt. Both accounts. And this is where we're at. We're going to be plundering Babylon as we leave. And now we're in the place before that where the veil is being lifted, but the clutter has to be cleared. Look at Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Let's see if I got that scripture right. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, bore him no children. Is that right? Okay, good. And she had a, ma a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Avram, See now, Yahuwah has restrained me from bearing. Please go into my maid. It may be that I obtain children by her. And Abraham and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar her maid, the Egyptian. 
And Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said to Abram, My wrong is upon you. I have given my maid into your bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. Yahuwah judge betwixt thine between me and you. See, this is what it's all about. It's that space in between. Carnality and the spiritual all that you can be. That's where Yahweh's judging. Betwixt, bind betwixt, that space in between, where there is no manner of form. You can either get an Ishmael and birth that, which will lead to you burning down the spiritual you and living as the carnal you, or you can birth and Isaac, and burn down the carnal you, and ignite the spiritual you. It's going either way. But it all begins bind betwixt, in between the places. Does that make sense? Let's read on. Verse 6. But Avram said to Sarai, See, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as it pleases you. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her face. And the Malach Yahuwah, the angel of Yahuwah, found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain on the way to Shur. And she said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where did you come from and where will you go? And she said, I flee, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the Malak, the angel of Yahuwah, said to her, Return, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hands. And the Malak, the angel of Yahuwah, said to her, I will multiply, listen. You see, we're so often caught up into the patriarchy that we forget the importance of women, the importance of the sensitivity that women can bring to the whole equation to help us all in community. Abraham, 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 he's the one that's given the promises. Hagar's given some pretty amazing promises too. She that was hated. She that was abused, she that has been overlooked all her life. So many of you women have been overlooked, have been spiritually abused, have been physically abused, sexually abused, emotionally abused. Not all. Overlooked. But Yahweh has a plan for women. And it's a vitally important plan that we see as mothers, as wives, as grandmothers, as grandchildren and children. Every way he can use women in a mighty way because now we're going to see here's the blessing. Here's the blessing. Verse 10. 
And the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will multiply your seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. That kind of sounds Abrahamic, doesn't it? And the angel of Yahweh said to her, See, you are with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has heard your affliction. Uh, he shall be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brothers. And she called on the name of Yahweh that spoke to her, You, you are El Roy. For she said, I, for she said, have I even here looked upon him that sees me? Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahoi Roy, and it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Avraham a son, and Avraham called his son's name, which Hagar bore him, Ishmael. And Avraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Avraham. This is powerful and so oftentimes overlooked. Yahweh's angel speaks directly to the maidservant, directly to Hagar. In verse 13, we see that Hagar names Yahweh, gives him a full title and attribute. Would Yahweh speak to a woman? And would she dare reply? What happened to Hagar in this text is amazing. Now, there's three things that actually mirror Avraham's experiences. Look at them. Now, remember I, I told you in Genesis chapter 12, in the Torah portion, that's entitled Lech Lecha. That's the Torah portion. But right here, Lech Lecha means to go forth. It's very, it's masculine in form. It's masculine in form. But here we see the switch of how Yahweh is dealing with women because it's the same title, little different, Leche Lach. It means to go forth, but it's totally feminine. Leche Lach. So instead of Lecha, which is masculine to go forth, we've got here Leche Lach, which means to go forth, but it's feminine because here, it's about the woman's own personal spiritual journey. She leaves her home. Look, number one, Yahuwah made a covenant with her just as he did with the patriarchy. And then number two, she, like the patriarchy, will have numerous offspring. And number three, just like the patriarchy, she's told her son's name before his birth just as later, we find Abraham is told his son's name before his birth. You see, this is how Yahweh is choosing to deal with women on par with men. And we understand this through the revelation of Yahushua the Messiah and the full counsel of Elohim. But here there's something that's so different to the relationship. It's so distinct. It's so special. It's a special thing that Hagar has in her relationship with Yahuwah. Hagar 
gives Elohim a name. Avraham never did this. He never did this. And Sarai never did this either. This is special with Hagar, the one that was hated, misused, and abused. Hagar ends up, because of the trials of how she was overlooked, that she wrestled with Elohim and she becomes more comfortable with Elohim because of her trials. She becomes more comfortable with Elohim because of the struggles that she's had in her life. The abuse that she's encountered has ignited a flame within her that actually turns to be and a blessing. And I'm speaking to many, many women right now, and you know it because the Spirit's moving on you in your life on how all of those years that you were overlooked, trodden on, downtrodden, abused, Yahweh's using that now to show you that there's a special relationship that you have with Him. Hagar's a lot more comfortable with Yahweh. A lot more comfortable. She doesn't need signs. Abraham needed signs, but not Hagar. She doesn't need signs. She accepts, ladies, she accepts her circumstance just the way it is. I accept my circumstance the way it is. And the way it is will cause me to draw closer to you because I am comfortable with you. I am so comfortable with you that I'm going to name you. And she demonstrates she has a personal relationship with Elohim through all of that. And her son is called Ishmael. Elohim hears. And she calls Elohim el Khroi. Elohim does see me. I'm no longer overlooked. Yes, maybe by the world. Yes, maybe by my husband. Yes, maybe by the culture. But Elohim sees me. He knows me and I know him. And I'm comfortable with him. And he's comfortable with me. Elroy. Elohim who sees me. And later, Abraham names the mountain where he took Gitzak. Adonai sees. You see, as we look into the narrative, we see that this whole narrative, there is water that's flowing throughout it. Or if there's not water, we see the very drawback and lack of it. Because mikvah, water and immersion of the spirit is a huge part of this whole tapestry. Water and spiritual belief brings forth strength and endurance. Sarah And Rebecca, they're first introduced to us in the scriptures. Where are they? In dry places or at wells? At wells. Israel is strengthened when Israel finally wakes up and leaves Egypt and crosses the Red Sea. And whenever there's a lack of water with Israel, there's some troubles. There's some murmurings. There's a dimming of the faith. And the evidence is weak. They become weakened. How about Miriam? Miriam, her name means 
sees. She dies, and all of a sudden, what happens to Israel? Israel was without water, begins to quarrel, begins to lose faith. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, water is key. He gets frustrated. Why? It's all about water. He gets frustrated and he strikes the rock. He should have spoken to it, but he got frustrated in that moment. Hagar is sent out into the wilderness where she and Ishmael, they run into a dry place. They run out of water. And what happens when she runs out of water? She starts to lose her faith. She starts to lose her faith. And so much so that she actually sits down, starts to watch the promise die. See, that's what happens if you don't continue to overcome all of that overlooked abuse. All of those years of being overlooked, you'll just sit down, start to believe the lies of Satan, and you'll watch the very promises that Yahuwah made to you in your youth when you knew that you had a calling. But oftentimes, because you've been misused, you've been overlooked and you've been abused, you forget the promises and you'll sit down in a dry place and watch the promises die right before you. No, that's, that's Hagar at her worst, like we saw Abraham at his worst. No, don't watch your blessed son die. Open your eyes. See that it is Elohim who hears you. He hears you. Become one with the Elohim that she hears. This is the journey of ascent from the base levels of Hagar's carnality. She opens her eyes and all of a sudden she finds a well. She finds refreshment and she calls that place Beer Lachoi Roy, the well of the living one who actually sees me. How many of you feel that way? Yes, the living one actually sees me. I'm comfortable with him. I've overcome. And I am not going to sit down and watch the promises that Yahuwah made to me die. I'm, not, I'm opening my spiritual eyes. I'm seeing it play out right before me. Because if you look at the name Hagar, and you look at the spelling in the Hebrew, there's a change as the story develops. Do you want to be an outsider? Do you want to be foreign? Or do you want to dwell? Because Hagar is an outsider at first. Hagar means Adonai is foreign. But after she is cast out with little faith, a woman of bondage, does she find the living water? Does she find salvation? Yes. And she's no longer Hagar. Adonai is foreign. She becomes Adonai dwells. There's a change in her name. Just a slight one that you can catch. She becomes Adonai dwells. Hagar rather than Hagar. A slight distinction. This is powerful because the fullness that we have is dwelling within those covenants of promise. 
The very covenants of promise that Paul disseminated to the nations, which ends in the allegory and metaphor, I told you I'd try and tie it back, to Galatians chapter 4, the allegory between Sarai and Hagar. It's two covenants. You're going to live in the carnal realm or you're going to set the city on fire. Because if you set the city on fire, you'll no longer be a stranger, a foreigner, and overlooked. You'll realize this isn't all about the patriarchy. This is about there is neither male or female, slave or free, but you are all one in Messiah. Let's turn and finish up with Galucha, Galatians, and we find Sarah and Hagar there, two covenants. And this really actually is an allegory. I don't need to look at it allegorically. There's no other way but to see this allegorically. And it's aimed, of course, Paul talks to Pharisaic Jews at the time because one son is going to be produced by faith and one son is produced by a lack of faith. We've got two sons, faith, and then we've got another son, a lack of faith. So this allegory is totally mistaught by the church and, of course, the messianic movement. This isn't the Torah is bondage, how the church would teach it. And in this allegory, the messianic would say, oh, it's the written law versus the oral law. That's not what this is about. Mount Sinai corresponds to or is like the Jerusalem that produced slaves to the what? Book of the law. They were all under the book of the law, the Jerusalem that was at the time of Paul's writing. They had approached the mountain, if you will, without faith and were thus slaves to the book of the law. The other son, in the allegory here, approaches the mountain by faith. And that faith is what inaugurated, we know, the book of the covenant. And the first time we see this is in the life of the book of the covenant community of faith embodied by Yahusha. Galatians chapter 4 See if I got the verse right. Is it verse 21? Tell me, you that desire to be under the law. What is this talking about? The church would tell you this is talking about the whole of the Old Testament law. I totally disagree. In the Messianic movement, they would say, oh, this is talking about um, just the oral law. Well, where does it say that? Galatians already tells you in the third chapter, the context of the whole dichotomy is the book of the law. So we will go with the Galatians' prior interpretation in the 10th verse of the third chapter. Tell me, you that desire to be under the book of the law, do you not listen to the covenant? Do you not listen to the book of the covenant, Torah? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Is that written in the book of the law or is that written in the book of the covenant? It's written in the book of the covenant, right? Of course. Abraham had two sons, the one by the female slave and the other by the free woman. But he who was from the female slave was born after the flesh. But he from the free woman was by promise. So this is talking about that law division. The book of the law was born after and is what? Carnal in its ordinances. It's fleshly. Which things are literal. No, they're allegories. It says it right there. 
For these are the two covenants. So how you can say that this is about the book of, um, how you can say this is about the oral law and the written law, since when is the oral law a covenant? It's not a rabbinic, it's a rabbinic man-made decree. But the book of the covenant is a covenant, and within the book of the law are there covenants. Yes, they're not allowed ratified, they don't have a covenant confirming meal, but there are covenants within the book of the law for sure and for certain. So yes, this is true, very true in its division, which things we see are two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which brings forth slavery, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the Jerusalem that now exists. At the time of Paul's writing, they were still following the book of the law and it is in slavery with her children. So Paul states right here that this allegory is about two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, Exodus 24 verse 12 which is book of the law, and is fleshly and brings you into bondage and was the present state of Jerusalem in Paul's day. Because you have to understand that there is a covenant distinction between them going up the mountain, having the covenant confirming meal with the 70 elders, and once that covenant is blood ratified, can you add any more to it? No, but then it says in verse 12, then he gave them as a law more. So that has got to tell you there is a distinction of what law we're talking about. This is the problem that we've really had to try and help people to understand, which is what I spoke about the other week, the difference between the chronological interpretation of Torah, which Rambam was one that... that um, believe that. And then I spoke about, even with the rabbis, Rashi understood that Torah was chronological in narrative, but not chronological in mitzvot. And in fact, the tabernacle was a response to the golden calf breach. It wasn't before it. That's a lot to unpack, or, uh, unpack in just a phrase or two, but we are being mature and seasoned in the faith and able, hopefully, to communicate this. It goes on to say right here in verse 26, but the Jerusalem that is above is free. That's that city on fire, which is the mother of us all. The book of the covenant is freedom because it's heavenly. It's Malkitzedek. And I know personally Walking out the Book of the Covenant Torah has been pure joy and a freedom compared to when I was in the Messianic movement and trying to understand it all and seeing the hypocrisy of, so yes, we're Torah observant, yet we're really not because we're still just picking and choosing like the church, except that we're saying we're not. We're just waiting for a bunch of apostate Jews and then we'll really start doing Torah. What? I thought we believed in Yahusha. Oh yeah, but really we're going to follow with the apostate Jews and once they build a temple, then we'll really be doing the Torah. Hey, let's come around my house and we'll do Purim and Hanukkah. Where's that in the Bible? Oh, it's in John chapter 10. Didn't you know that? Where, that doesn't say that we've got to start keeping Hanukkah. 
just says that he went up to the Feast of Dedication. It's just like, you know, I could go up to a Christmas gathering and start going, hey, you bunch of pagans, let me tell you about something. Doesn't mean I'm celebrating Christmas, does it? I mean, can we have some deductive reasoning here? But traditions, that's the problem. People love their traditions, and we just jumped out of the frying pan of Christian pagan traditions into the fire of Judaic Jewish pagan traditions. It's no different until finally we're like, let's just do Bible things Bible ways and we're really good to go, right? I love it. I love it. Verse, whatever verse, because my verse is, this is verse 227. (laughs) For it is written... Rejoice, you barren that did not bear. Break forth. Verse 333. And shout for joy. It really does say that right here. i got to get a new help me out somewhere with some Bible software. You that did not have labor, for the barren and deserted one has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, Israelite brothers, are like Isaac was, We are the children of promise. The covenants of promise bring forth children of promise. But but as it was then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Even so, it is now. He's just nailing it for us. He's talking about the corrupt Hasmonean temple system that was flaunting the book of the law. They weren't even keeping the book of the law. They were persecuting the people. They were persecuting the faithful. They were persecuting the followers of Yahushua. Verse 330. Nevertheless, what does the scriptures tell us to do? Cast out the female slave and her son. For the son of the female slave shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Talking about allegory and metaphor, you can't say that you are free if you're under the book of the law when Yahushua has inaugurated the book of the covenant, Malkitzedic promises. So then, Israelite brothers, we are not children of the female servant, the book of the law, but of the free woman, the book of the covenant. That's the best allegory and metaphor so far because it really does break down the dichotomy and it's a book of the law, book of the covenant dichotomy. I struggled with that passage for so many years. And I was taught that it meant the Old Testament is Hagar and the New Testament is the Jerusalem above. And we don't do the law. You're not under the law. And then I got into the Messianic movement. They're like, oh, no, no, that's wrong. We totally do the Torah, but we don't do the oral law of the rabbis. And so some of you started slaughtering lambs. And then they're like, well, no, we actually don't do that part. Oh, we don't do the animal sacrifices? Well, no, we've got to wait till the apostate Jews build a temple, and then we'll all go trucking up to Jerusalem behind Monte Judah, and then we'll start slaughtering lambs. And we're like, what? Okay, all right. Oh, my goodness. So basically, we're picking and choosing. 
There's no difference. It's religiosity until finally you say, no, let's do it all in the book of the covenant. It's all for us. It's called the covenants of promise. I want to live my faith out today. I don't want to have to delay. Live your faith today, or shall we live a faith of delay waiting on the apostate? No. Allegory and metaphor. What a great approach. But in finality, my hope as I look out is see that this isn't about a system of patriarchy, but this is about a system where we acknowledge that there are male and females, yes, but we're all free. We're all free. But we have to acknowledge that some of you ladies that have been just like Hagar, when you truly, truly take stock and walk in faith and don't sit down and let the promise die, you can be all that you can be and you can turn it around for great glory to help the community because you actually are more comfortable with Yahuwah than a lot of the patriarchy because you named Yahuwah. And Yahuwah names you, and you walk with him through the trial and through the fire, and now it's time to just set that city on fire and be all that you can be. That's a hope and a promise of blessing and restoration. So I'm thankful for all the women in the Malkitzedic priesthood. I'm thankful for all the women out there. Thank you. Bless you. Amen. Amen.